0: There could hardly be a better time to ask the question, What's the point? What's it all about? Why are we doing what we are doing? And that's a good question to a lot of people in this world that are quite concerned about what we are doing or what we are not doing over here in East Texas. I'll begin by turning to 1 Corinthians one twenty-six, which is an old familiar scripture, and wonder if we really see our calling in the way that God sees our calling. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. I look around the room, and I don't know how many people there are here who have an IQ of 139 plus. There are some rather large men here. A couple of them have been up here in the pulpit a moment or two ago. I was standing between a couple of large men a moment ago enjoying a fantastic sing-fest here that was very moving. When I stand between Ted Phillips and Bronson James, I tend to disappear. (laughs) I look like a little old gray-haired man, a little runt. But there aren't really many mighty in the room, I don't know what kind of uh, physical condition we are in. Not many noble, I don't know of a single noble-born person, Prince Charles is not here today. But God has chosen the foolish, and you can read people as the original really should read throughout if you would check some of the other translations, not things, but foolish people, foolish ones of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen weak people of the world to confound those who are mighty and base, base people, and people who are despised as God-chosen, and I think that is especially apropos, which are not, which appear to be nothing. There are rumors extant to the effect that we are not. We don't exist. I'm not really doing what I am doing every day. I'm not over there in front of the television cameras in Channel 7. I'm not on television. I'm not standing here in the pulpit today. It came from the highest possible authority... In the worldwide church less than two weeks ago, Ted is destitute. He has no more formal meetings. There are no churches. There is no work being done. It has all dwindled down to only a scattered group meeting in his own home in private. Isn't it amazing that there are those who say today, We are nothing, we are not. And God has chosen things which are not to bring to naught things that are. "...that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord." The theme I want to orchestrate over and over again today is that God wants you. And that's a miracle. You? I mean, consider who you are. Consider your background. Consider your power or your strength. If you were to be given a shovel and an assignment to dig a ditch six feet deep, 100 yards long, exactly two and a half feet wide, how long would it take you? How many in this room would die of a heart attack before they got through the first few yards of earth? How mighty are we? How powerful are we? There are many of our brethren living today in a feeling of fear, of absolute terror in some cases, in terror of their very eternal life and their personal destiny. They are not sure anymore, where I think they used to be years ago, that they were headed toward God's kingdom. Some of their ministry is actually telling them dealing with various hypothetical percentages that a certain percentage of the -the so-called dyed-in-the-wool hardcore members of this particular group who call themselves the Philadelphian church are going to be burnt in a lake of fire. And they're sitting there figuring the percentages like throwing the dice, wondering how it comes up. It's like picking the straws. You end up with a short one. Are you going to go into a Gehenna fire unless you appear in church with exactly the right skirt length, exactly the right length of hair, with your face washed to the so-called dirt that they are now calling it, are these the criteria, are these the modes and the methods by which you can finally guarantee you get into the kingdom of God? And if you remain attached laterally to a human leader and loyally to each other, And all as one body, meaning translated, one organization. You can look around and see the body because there it is physically. And you will then be in the kingdom of God. But if you don't accomplish those things, unquestioning, absolute, uncomplaining, automatic obedience to a man, dogged, determined, month in and month out, year in and year out, sacrificial offerings of your sustenance, of your time, your energy, a complete, almost voluntary humility, and I read of that somewhere in the Bible, of subjecting every one of your problems, bottling it up, frightful, fearful of taking a problem to the minister. Why should the minister be to you the most friendly man you know? Why should he be the most, perhaps, you hope, educated in the congregation? the one best equipped to give you wise counsel. Why should you call your minister your friend? Why would you ever come up with the idea that if you have a problem at home, something you're having difficulty with, where you were only six or seven, you could creep off and tell your mom about it. When you were nine and ten, you could have a heart-to-heart talk with your dad. Now today, maybe you could say, "Uh, Mr. So-and-so, could I have a chance to talk with you in private? And tell your minister about something and expect that he would understand, that he would even empathize, sympathize, listen to your complaint. In the same way, a mother would pick up a child and dry his tears and put necuriform on his skin knee and hold him and comfort him when he's hurting. How does it come to be that people who consider their calling have now limited that calling so dramatically that they really do not even see it anymore. What they see instead is the threat. What they see is not the calling, not the hope, not the bright, vibrant, beautiful, fabulous future that awaits them, not the great potential and all that they can be. If they're going to get any encouragement these days, it's going to have to be from the Dr. Pepper ads. It's going to have to be from Allstate. You're in good hands with Allstate. Be all that you can be. Marvelous statement. But you do that by drinking a diet Dr. Pepper and keeping a weight off your middle. But you do not find these great slogans extant between your minister and yourself in a church organization to which I refer. If I were to say to someone else, oh, I wouldn't care whether or not you judge me I wouldn't care whether or not you prate around over the world and up and down state to state among people about what a terrible thing I am. I read in this Scripture, but of Him are you, Garner Ted Armstrong, are you, substitute your name, in Christ Jesus, who of God, by and from God, by God's power, is made unto us wisdom. Wisdom guess how wise I really am when I don't know the answer? I just turn to Christ and He always knows the answer. And righteousness. Me, of myself, righteous? Well, ridiculous. But how righteous is Christ? And sanctification. And redemption. If Christ is your wisdom, if He is your righteousness, if he is the individual who separates you to a holy purpose, sanctification means to set apart to a holy purpose, if he is your purchaser, he bought you at auction, so to speak, the devil was there bidding, the devil finally quit bidding. He wasn't willing to bid as high as Christ. He wasn't willing to pay the price. He didn't have the money. didn't have the paycheck. Christ kept right on bidding until it was going, going, gone. And it hit the block. Sold. Jesus Christ bought you, substitute your name, He redeems you, that according as it is written, He that glories, you want to swell up and boast, be egotistical, you want to talk about how good you are, how great you are, what you've accomplished, how powerful you are, what your great office is, your vaunted position, that you may glory in the Lord. In First Corinthians 15:49 to 52 and I won't read it all, it says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It talks about how we will all be changed, that Christ is the first fruit, and we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and we will no longer be flesh, but we will become something else. We'll become a spirit being. Do you know that all religion from time immemorial, even among the pagan Babylonians, has been, in effect, a celebration of life? I was talking about this in Chicago recently and on one telecast. Oftentimes, people in religious organizations have misunderstood the motives of the pagans. They have generally tended to put down all paganism as being brutal, hateful, dark, morbid, thinking of it as a lot of bloody ritual of routine mass murder. They think of it as an organization or some kind of a cultural, uh, religious society, like the American Indians, even in southwestern United States. In Texas, there used to be people down around Corpus Christi who literally were cannibals. In the early days, even before the Spanish came, human sacrifice was not unknown because it had spilled over from the borders of Mexico, where it was a common practice among some of the Aztecs, the Toltecs, the Mayans, the Incas, down further in the Central and uh, America and northern South America, where they lived and worshiped Quetzalcoatl. All religion from the ancient Sumerians, Sidonians, and Babylonians was, in effect, a celebration of life. If there's one factor with which we deal every single day when we wake up, it is here we are. That's you in the mirror, rubbing your eyes, going to get your first cup of coffee if you drink it, waking up and going about the ablutions and the necessary bodily functions, getting breakfast getting the batteries charged up, getting started. You go off to do whatever it is you do every day. Some of you working. Some of you housewives. Some retired. Whatever it is that keeps you going, you are like a temporal piece of machinery depending upon air, water, and food. And every day you fuel your body as we took time out here at noon to go do that so we'd have the strength And hopefully not that we ate too much so we don't go to sleep today, but we would have the strength to make it through the afternoon until we have a dinner this evening. Then we go to bed and we recharge our batteries and flip our eyes up like the little doll that does that when you put her down and stare at our brains for about eight hours. Wake up, not a bit inspired by what we've been looking at, apparently. With our eyes red, we rub all the sleep out of it and we go through the whole process again. Why? You keep doing that interminably, enough years, enough decades, you know what happens to you? same things have been happening to me. Look, I put it down like that in a strong light and I see pink in there now. Hair starts to fall out. You fight the battle of AIDS. There are women out there that are, where I live that are not going to give up. They are absolutely determined that they will not give up. There's one that has a kind of a white colored rag that she's put around through the bald spots in her hair. And she is probably one of the most grateful ladies to the advent of plastic and foam and hairspray and rubber that has ever existed in the history of the world. She is like a lot of other people, and I don't mean to put women down, because this one woman, you know, bless her heart, I'd like to tell, tell her that she could just become a grandmother type and put her grandkids on her knee, and, and, and she would be a lovely lady. But she is so obviously trying to be 16, and she's about 79, and that's what makes it look so ridiculous. You know, 79-year-old women basically should not have long blonde hair down their back. I mean, just... Somehow, it doesn't work in our society. But anyway, enough of that. If we keep on living this life, it will inevitably happen to us. It will move from this side of the street to the other side of the street. And if you look out what I'm talking about, there's a graveyard right straight out the front door. And we are going to die. Now, pagans knew that. Pagans knew where babies came from. They knew what made carrots and rutabagas and taro roots and coconuts and bananas grow. They recognized the action of soil and sun and rain. They recognized the progression of seasons as the moon came and went, came to full and then waned to be a little disc, a little sliver of its former self. They even called wheat the staff of life. They knew and they worshipped bundles of wheat, shocks of corn, collections of uh, calabash or squash, and they then worshipped the gods that they thought must exist, even though they couldn't see them. But tradition said that the gods at one time did come down and consort with men atop Mount Olympus or atop some mountain in Central of South America, like Aconcagua, at 22,000 feet. And so they worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars, wind, waters, rain, soil, and animals. And they would pray to the gods of the animals, not understanding migratory patterns of our elk or moose or perhaps the buffalo that the Indians followed, and they prayed for a successful hunt. One thing they understood was what life was all about. It was a never-ending struggle for survival. And you grew old and tired, and some of them practiced fratricide. When you became so old and so tired, you could no longer contribute to the community. Then you were asked, among some of our American Indian societies, to go off by yourself and sit in the forest and simply stare at nothing and you chanted the the death chant until you died and it has been recorded that people can literally will to die people can with their own mind at elderly age sit down and decide I'm going to die there is something doctors know about the will to live in an operation where a person will have a strong determination I want to live I have a lot to live for I want to stay alive and for some reason the body responds and the body even produces its own healing, uh, whatever, you know, its own internal healing medicines of some sort. I don't know what to call them. And the body survives. Or they can give up and quit and they die. And so they abandoned those elderly people and they practiced sometimes a kind of a new euthanasia on elderly people. Well, they decided it would be good to tithe from their tribe. And the way a lot of those ancient pagan tithes was they would give back. One of the little brown babies, every now and then. They would simply offer it back. God gave it. Here are all these other babies. Let's give one back. So, in the rainforests of Central America, when they dredged out one of the rain pools there of one of the ancient wells nearby some of the temples of the god that is called uh, Quetzalcoatl, like you see around Chichen Itza down in Merida in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, and they came up with a lot of little bitty skulls. I remember it was in National Geographic of little tiny skulls of infant. And they could even, I guess, determine by the shape of the skull or something, whether male or female. And they would show all these hundreds of relics and bones and little stone gods that they would throw in there. And they would throw living children, apparently. Maybe they slaughtered them in some way first. Maybe they did as the Aztecs did and literally took the heart out and killed them in that fashion atop some pyramid down in Mexico. Bloody, isn't it? Hideous. And yet, in a sense, it was a celebration of life. It wasn't a celebration of death. They were just deceived, stupid, ancient, ignorant, illiterate, childlike. You know, an awful lot has been written about the American Indians, and people can't make up their minds. Whether he was the noble red man or a filthy savage that ought to be killed on sight. And actually, the controversy still rages today. You can go get books from either point of view. And very few people seem to be able to see that both were true. That he could be an absolute, incredible savage, and why go into some of the savagery that they worked upon early American settlers, or the age-old problems to who was in the wrong when the settlers dispossessed them, or whether he was, in fact, the noble red man with great principles, with a very tight-knit tribal society, with a firm belief in the great spirit and with a very firm belief in certain principles by which he lived. He would war against a neighboring tribe, steal from a neighboring tribe, and yet be the most honest, faithful, loyal member of his own tribe that you could ever hope to meet. The pagans believed that gods came down and talked to men. They believed that God came down and consorted with men. They believed that gods even came down and perhaps married women. And that pagan belief has found itself in some so called Christian uh, books. For instance, even Bullinger's Companion Bible believes that the sixth chapter of Genesis is actually telling us that the Nephilim came from cohabitation between angelic beings and women and doesn't understand the real truth of that at all, though he has a great deal of truth in other directions. Let's turn to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Believe it or not, God demands that we give back from life, that Almighty God demands a sacrifice. God says He's earned it. God says He deserves it. God says He's paid the price. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living, not a dead, bloody sacrifice, but a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's your understandable, logical requirement. There's nothing illogical, nothing unreasonable about the fact that God, who made these flowers, who made your body, who causes that sun to shine so beautifully on us today, who causes these seasons to be so enjoyable, so the last couple of days here in Tyler have been absolutely idyllic. One of the best days I've ever spent in a golf course was yesterday afternoon late. Got out and we had a scramble where I live where they all, you know, partners, five or six in a group will shoot and each one shooting the best ball. And you're out there wearing shorts and a short-sleeved shirt and the sun is shining on you and there are birds flitting around in the trees. It's absolutely marvelous. Lake visible here and there. Almighty God, the God I'm talking about, is the God who made the entirety of the universe and the solar system, and this earth, and every conceivable life form that is upon it. And that great God is concerned about this human physical creation, about you and me. Is it really true that he knows every sparrow that falls? The other day we had a tragedy at our house, the birdhouse fell down, and we had a pair of bluebirds nesting, and we'd been watching these parents, and they were just working themselves to death, and we were just so delighted, because every morning I could eat breakfast, and I could say, Look, honey, look out the window. And the male and the female are perched there with a grub or a worm or a, hand, a fistful. I'm saying fistful, beakful of, of bugs. And they would disappear with just a little tail sticking out. And we're knowing that they're tucking it down the open maw of the little baby that I could faintly see in there. I think it was only one. Well, the little egg that I saw hatched, and now the little fledgling is in there, and it's getting bigger by the day. And these parents are just... They'll poke food in it and just flit away. and Moments later, they're back and poking another bug down the gullet. You know, the little bird will do that. And they're feeding it, little bluebirds. Well, bluebirds are supposed to be an endangered species. There aren't that many of them anymore. And I was really hoping that this pair would be successful in raising this little one. And uh, lo and behold, horrible wind came along. Well, the dumb thing wasn't fastened down the way it ought to be. So here's the birdhouse on its top, outside of the fence. I look. The baby is nowhere in sight. Did God know that when I didn't? I'm sound asleep in my bedroom. And the Bible tells me God knows every sparrow, and I'm going to include bluebirds. I don't think He's saying just the sparrow. I think He meant birds that falls. Well, we had to go to the nursery to get some grass, and when I parked my truck in back, we're wandering around out there, and Cheryl exclaimed, oh, look here, because you see, I I didn't know the wind did it. I thought a cat did it. And I was mad at the cat. There are all kinds of cats. Most people do not know that cats are as ravenous as leopards and lions, and even though you know uh, she sits there on the couch and purrs, and you like to stroke her at night when you let her out in any kind of a community, if there's any lawn, shrubbery, or grass around, that is a baby bird killer you got there, and it will maraud in birds' nest and come back with a feather a pick, you know, a little bit, and somebody's little precious baby bird is gone. So anyway, uh, that's enough on cats. But cats are very secretive about it. They never. They never let on what's really going on. They're just kind of looking around, but they're, they're planning tonight's uh, carousing and what they're going to do out there. Well, I was pretty sure a cat had jumped up and been reaching in there, and it overbalanced it. And I thought, oh, honey, a cat got the bird. So I said, if those cats come around my backyard, I'm going to get my 22 and kill them. Some neighbor's going to be minus a cat, because I thought that was horrible. Well, here's the bird, little fledgling. She finds it lying in the grass, little yellow feet, up like this, and it's, uh, and no, not a, not a, not a sign of an injury or a wound on it. I guess it died of shock and fright from just plummeting off of the fence and banging its head on the roof of the, of the little birdhouse there, and I guess wandering around, and the parents probably couldn't find it or whatever. It might have happened at night. I was really upset over the loss of that one little bird. And, I think about that statement by Jesus Christ of Nazareth that he knows every hair of our head. The mind of God, I confess, is totally beyond my ability to comprehend. I can only keep a very few little things on my mind at once. My eyesight is limited by the molecules of air, by distance and space and refraction and reflection of sunlight. My reach is limited. My stride is limited. My heartbeat and my lungs are limited so that after I've run my mile and a half in the morning, I'm just about as tired as I want to be, and that's enough. If I had to run 26, I would die, no doubt. I'm very, very limited as a flesh and blood human being. And my mind is very limited. I've got to recharge it several times. And so, every single 24-hour period, I've got to take time out and lie inert and go completely unconscious and then wake up and get up, and when I first get up, everything creaks. And everything is kind of ancient feeling, and, and kind of like the lubricating oil is gone from the joints, and I kind of tentatively work it. I roll out and groan on my shoulder of my arm, and I groan when I put my feet on the floor, and I groan when I stand up. And a few more groans, I've made it to the bathroom. I groan a while when I'm trying to reach up for my head, you know, and, and, and take a shower, and I groan when I step out. After a lot of groaning and complaining, Uh, then I'm, I'm ready to go again during that day. As I get older, I expect to be tolerated a little more than I am today. I expect that after a few more years of living life together, my wife will get used to my groanings, and she won't say what she does when that noise comes out of me every now and then. But it happens to us. And I see some gray heads out here kind of agreeing with what I'm saying. And as this life goes on, I think it behooves all of us, it certainly behooves me, to ask, what was it all for? I think as no other person, I could give up very easily and almost have a lot of people understand why I did. I could quit doing what I'm doing, and a lot of people wouldn't blame me. I could say, look, I labored for 28 solid years, did a half-hour radio program six days a week, TV, and for about a year and a half or two I was on television daily. Hundreds of articles and booklets and traveling around and preaching sermons like this before audiences of 12 to 15,000 people. I've stood in pulpits for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours until I thought I would hang my lungs on the furthest balcony and go away trembling and unable to speak. Feast after feast, I would lose my voice to where I would virtually have to communicate on a pad and was not able to whisper a word when the feast was over and fell back in exhaustion and then wondered, you know, when do we start it again? And it was all for what? It would be easy if I were to lose sight of the answer to the question I'm asking today, what's it all about? What is it for? Why do we do it? if I didn't know the answer to that, it would be very easy to quit and it would be very understandable to a lot of people as to why I had quit. 28 years only to start over again at age 54 for pity's sake and start back doing what I was doing when I was 26. I'm not 26 anymore. It's not as easy as it was when I was 26. I want to ask you, what is it for? God demands we give back What he has given. He says he requires a living sacrifice. But what's the point to that? What what does he want us to do that for? What's God need with you? Now when I say you, think about you. You know, you in your beautiful, naked profile before a full-length mirror. As only you know exactly what you look like, because that's what God knows, the way you look. I know what I look like in naked profile. Yuck. It's awful. All right. Let's turn to John, the first chapter, right quickly. I'm not going to read a lot of this, but John 1 and Hebrews 1 are the two scriptures that tell us about the time when God became a man. When God came down, not on Mount Olympus, but He came down probably in the area of the Mount of Olives. If the truth were known, in Eden originally, which was the very site, I believe, and I think Hebrew tradition is probably correct, the Garden of Eden was probably in the the region or the location of where Jerusalem is today although the topography has been changed by earthquakes and fault lines and so on. In the beginning was the Word. Now, I would like to see that dramatized sometime. I'd love to have a movie made on real creation. And when we have the power to do that in the kingdom of God, we will do so. Although then I think we'll be able to do it with vision. And perhaps the power of God can simply sit a classroom down then and just transport them by vision back to the way it was in the beginning. And audiovisual education will reach its stride in the millennium, the kingdom of God. You won't have to do it with cutting film and and post-editing and film and video footage and all that and research and writing. You can just simply, with the power of God, give them a vision, put it in their mind. I'll never forget the creation, which is a, a kind of a dramatic... Song that is done by a full choral group, and I think Fred Waring did a particularly exciting, inspiring version of it in the Pasadena Civic Auditorium many years ago. And the choir was back there singing this kind of a low, vroom, vroom kind of background, you know, and then they got down to an absolute pin spot, totally black in the auditorium. And this big, handsome black man, probably about Bronson's size, comes out, and he had one of the most magnificent bass baritone voices I have ever heard. And he rushes out from the wings and comes to his knees and slides about four feet and starts with his hands up with a pin spot on him, only his face, and he said, God stepped out of the universe! And you know, I mean, my hair stood up on him. Everybody else's hair stood up on him. And I mean, you got goosebumps all over you. And he began to sing this song about God said, let there be light, and so on. and The creation of the birds and how they split the air with their wings. And It was so dramatic. It was a musical drama of what it was like at the creation. And it was electrifying. I've never forgotten it 20-some years later. I'd go to see that in a minute if I knew where it was playing today. In the beginning was the word. I wish we had cymbals, bass drums, and 130 you know, instruments of some sort so we understood the meaning of these words in the beginning. God, from eternity to eternity. What's eternity? Roll time back to the American Revolutionary War. Roll time back to the time when my father was born up here in Des Moines, Iowa, and ran out chucking rocks at woodchucks in a vacant lot which long since has become probably part of the downtown. Do you realize that his generation, 99.44% of that living generation, the great movers of corporate industry, the builders of America, the heads of banks and institutions, the movie stars, the presidents and members of Congress of that era are all gone. They're all dead. You go back to the tumultuous days of the, civic, or the Civil War, they're all dead. My grandmother was born one year after Abraham Lincoln was killed. She didn't die until the 1960s, I think, the early 1960s at age 96. That generation is gone. And before them, other generations. I wish I could have known what it was like. When my grandfather, Horace Armstrong, who was called Harry by his young wife, who was a very beautiful young lady, I've seen an old, faded, yellowish picture of my grandma. And she looked like she was a very attractive young woman, but they wore funny-looking clothes, you know, and bonnets and clothes all the way up to their neck and brushing on the dust of the ground in a kind of a puritanical era back then. And then I roll time back further, beyond the discovery of this continent by Eastern Europeans, but when men were here. And you can go down right here near Fort Worth in Texas. Matter of fact, the National Museum in Dallas will give you some of those early relics from people who lived. And down near Glen Rose, their footprints are indelibly etched in solid stone, and some of their burial sites are here. And they know that there were civilizations and cultures here in Texas centuries before the Spaniards ever introduced the horse into the Western world. There's a fabulous book on that about the entire history of Texas Mr. Dart has read and given me a copy of and it's really well worth your reading. And even before those people, there were other people here. This isn't a young land. It's an ancient, old land. The stone behind me is just as old as the rock of the Great Pyramid. The stone behind me is as old as the tomb in which Jesus lay. I can reach and touch that rock and it may be four and one half billion years of age? I don't know. Maybe several million? Maybe a hundred million? Give or take a million or two? Can we get the concept of forever in the beginning? The only beginning with which we're concerned. Now, this room has limits. We learn from a tiny child that things should be in right angles. We learn up and out and away and how far are things and how big are things. And they show us... In grade school, a mouse and an elephant. So you can think tiny and large. This was particularly difficult for my two sons because in learning to handle strange words they couldn't hear, they had to visualize or see words. So it was very difficult oftentimes for their teachers to teach them by comparisons and so on. The meaning of certain rather crazy words like all. How do you explain to a deaf child what is all? or what is everything, or what is nothing, or what is so far, or how far, or so long, or so big, or so large, or so many. So I don't understand eternity. I can only cope with the beginning of things. And beyond things, I'm lost. I can deal with things. I can deal with the universe. There it is. I can go out and look at it at night. There's the sun out there today and the moon tonight. I can deal with that in the earth, and I can even know that they're able apparently to tell within certain parameters how old some of the rocks are. But beyond that, when there was nothing. Now the concept of going out away from me in all directions boggles my mind. My mind goes, what? Because all directions don't exist. It's over there, or it's over there. It's back, or it's forth, you know. It's up or it's down. It's not everywhere. But as my mind goes clear past Betelgeuse, the middle star of the belt of Orion, as I go past Aldebaran, as I say that I'm in the proverbial spaceship at the speed of light, it takes me 55 years to reach Alpha Centauri, and I've only scratched the corner of our own solar neighborhood and haven't even touched the outer limits of the Milky Way as yet. But the Milky Way is only one little tiny spiral nebula of which there are billions with 200 billion, billion stars bigger than our sun in every one of them. And so-called black holes in the universe. And that every one of them are rushing away at who knows how many tens of thousands of miles per hour from apparently some central area where there was once a great cataclysm. A great explosion. That boggles my mind. How could there have been a being who reached out and grabbed hands full of nothing and made himself a giant hydrogen atom. And then that atom burst into billions of pieces. And because of various principles that he has built into his universe, which I don't understand, I don't really know what I'm doing standing here, why I'm not flying off the earth as it turns, is beyond me. Newton tried to define it, but he didn't invent it. He only called it gravity. And I resist it so many hours standing on my feet, and that's what makes my back hurt. Gravity does it to me. I lie on my side, and you ought to see my face when I wake up. It sags to one side. You know, when people die, they don't look the same. They're All the mus- muscles uh, just go, you know, and their, their face just kind of oozes down and flattens out on the concrete. It's really ridiculous looking. And when we get a little bit too much flatulent flesh around our faces, it sags. A lot of people go and have it cut out and thrown away and kind of stitch it up and pull it up. You've heard the story about the fat man, but that's a different one. (laughs) But they gathered him up and, you know, snipped it off. It's a horrible story. (laughs) Newton didn't invent it. He only tried to define it. In the beginning, in that dark blackness of nothingness, was the word. A voice came out of that blackness. And that word, that Greek word, and the Greek word is only a language. It's a symbol of certain little funny shapes, you know, And uh, just like the English language is a rebellious, law-abiding series of funny-looking squiggles, and the English word is an ugly language. For example, I, I think the word fuse is a pretty word where the word God in the english language god just think about it for a minute if if you i've always said if you repeat an english word the word word you stand around like some little puppet you say word 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 and you say it about 40 times and pretty soon it loses meaning and it's just a kind of an ugly sound that you are making well language is only some way by which we clack these tongues against the hard and the soft palate we explode and expel air from our bellows that are called our lungs And we make various noises by depressing our tongue, or by emitting various grunts and various syllabic kind of sibilant whispering sounds, and by going against our teeth and so on, and putting our tongue against our teeth and forcing the air to come out the side, which is what I do when I say at the end of teeth, which is a kind of a dangerous word for the people in the front row. (laughs) The word. What was that word? The Greek word is logos, L-O-G-O-S, and if you look it up, it means spokesman. A great, powerful voice that made a statement that gave a command. And the word was with God, an English word, God. Let's put it this way. That spokesman was with the divine family, with the ever-living, all-powerful, all-knowing members "...of a divine family who dwell in a different dimension, whose life is sustained internally, a perpetual motion kind of a life, self-sustaining, who know all the secrets of the universe, the secrets of the atom, nuclear fusion, nuclear fission, and know the secrets of magnetism, the secrets of outer space, x-ray vision, eternal life, solve the aging process, dwell in eternity, and are vastly superior beings to we mundane, temporal, human forms. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was back there in the dark beginning, before there was a world, with God. All things were made by Him. I don't know how much fun they had when they decided to make that particular form of flower. We've got these growing outside our house. I've never bothered to count how many petals there are on a geranium, or why they call it a geranium. I don't even know. I know why they call a red-winged blackbird a red-winged blackbird, because he's got red on his wings and he's black. But other than that, I don't know why a starling is a starling, or a sparrow is a sparrow, except that maybe they eat sparingly. Where some of the names come from, I really don't know. But as I try to take apart the elements of my temporal environment in which I live, and I've always been a, a, a fascinated, maybe kind of a stupid, wide-open, wide-eyed, dumb student of uh, nature. I can kneel down in my backyard and pick up some little growing thing and just stare at it until I nearly go blind because it just is, is so fabulous to me. I can look at little tiny wildflowers with the three separate patterns, of are little petals and these star shapes and how they will repeat their shape in every one of the flowers exactly and it just catches my breath. I can understand why David said what he did, why Solomon was such a naturalist, and why David would just marvel at the skies and said how marvelously he was made. I can dig that. I can understand it. Everything that was made, I have never seen up real close, except, well, maybe I've seen a couple of pictures of how mosquitoes slip in that beak and make a little incision and then inject into you immediately a painkiller, the little monsters, so you don't feel it. And they have some kind of a thing that they inject into you. It's just almost like the dentist coming along and shooting you full of novocaine before he yanks your tooth out. Dumb mosquito comes along, and they've got that. Now, when they pull it out, they've got some sort of infectious little bugs, I guess, if you could see them powerfully magnified. They've got germs on their little proboscis, and they leave some of the germs behind. When you scratch it, it gets infected, and then you've got this mound where this little booger... That I'm wrong. It's just a kind of a thought. I'd like it to be that way, but maybe it isn't that way. But when I say, when the, when the Bible tells me that everything was made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, I want to get the perspective that the one who came down to this earth and actually came down so far, that, that's what begins to impress me, is what a vast journey it was. Is the incredible distance between heaven and and where we are. And the futility, seemingly sometimes, of words. Did you ever feel at the close of a prayer that you didn't quite know how to close it? Now, really, you say in Jesus' name about three times. and You want to be so formal, and you want to get it just right. So at the last moment, at the end of the prayer, it's really... In Jesus' name. Now, then you get up and you go away from your prayer. I hope that one got there. I hope you heard that one. I hope that one got through. These words are important. I'll come back to that in a minute because I want to show you a classic example. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made It was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness doesn't comprehend or understand it. How true. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. I won't read all of this, but he bare witness of that light. Verse 10, He, that light, that word that was in the beginning, the blackness of nothingness, who made the hydrogen atom and made all of the universe, was in the world cosmos. He, the Logos, was in the cosmos, and the cosmos was made by Him. I am not a metallurgist. I don't know a lot about mineralogy. I did learn at one time the cleavage properties of certain minerals and certain aspects of mineralogy and I at one time could recite from the fingernail you know they use the fingernail as the hardness to softness and talc is the softest and I guess the diamond is the hardest and they will list them all from the diamond down to talc as the softest and the hardest of all the minerals there are and it's called the scratch properties of minerals as to what scratches what in other words a diamond scratches quartz quartz scratches a garnet, and a garnet might scratch something else, and that'll scratch something else which will scratch your thumbnail, and your thumbnail will scratch talc, which is found in a kind of a rock form. But I've forgotten a lot of that since my college days. But if it's that hard for me to learn, and to memorize, and to fathom, and to understand how the stalactites and stalagmites formed in the grand grand, uh, caverns, or whatever they're called over here and some of the great caves of uh, our Appalachian area over millions of years of chemicals dripping from the roof of a cave and form those beautiful things and they form exactly according to a set law, what about thinking it through and designing it and starting from scratch? Not even having a model to work with, having nothing and just designing all things. To me, it is absolutely awesome. He was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not and still doesn't. I submit to you that if we, and I believe we are God's people, are oftentimes left almost dumb by our inability to reach out and grasp with our mind the greatness of our God and to know Jesus Christ, then what does the world know about him? What about people out here that are completely confused and in absolute rank paganism of Christmas, Easter, New Year's, do not know the real Jesus Christ at all? Don't even know the Scripture. I'm telling you now that the God that created the universe and the God who was the God from the very beginning, who wrote the Ten Commandments with His own finger, is the personality of the God family who walked the earth, came down, was made as a human being, and was called Jesus Christ. They don't even know that if I say we sometimes struggle with all the knowledge God has revealed to us to capture in our minds the understanding of God, how far removed is the understanding of the average person out here in the world? How much have we got to give them? How much do we have to help them understand? How much do we have to explain to them and have them to come to know? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. What a statement. He came unto His own, the very race of which He was made a member. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on His name. And that is a fantastic statement. Let me hurry along. Again, I ask, what is the point? What's it all about? You can read Hebrews 1, the first portion of that. But back in Genesis, I won't turn to it, God said, let us make man in our image. And Almighty God decided, when they decided this, how the two of them thought it through. Were there other counselors? When did the plan of God first materialize? I tend to think it was from of, of ancient times, but what was before that, my mind says. And I can only say, but my mind is limited. As my reach is limited and my stride is limited, and I cannot understand. I'm like, you know, Harry the ant I talked about that says, oh sure, there's another ant hill a block away, which is only part of one town, which is only a suburb of a big city which is only one city out of 5,279 cities and towns, which is only one country out of several on a continent, which is only one out of several continents, which is only part of one little earth, which is like one grain of sand in the limitless seashore in the Milky Way, which is only one galaxy out of billions, the ant says, yeah, uh-huh, sure, sure, I believe it. You know, the ant in the ant hill. He doesn't understand what's going on in my neighborhood. I can pick up an ant, and there's not a lot that little ant knows. He knows a lot more than I do about how to survive in an anthill. I would die. But the ant doesn't know what I know. And I do not know a fraction of what God knows. I don't know but a tiny centillion. Probably .00001% of what God knows. If I could presume to know that much. That's how much I know about what God knows. He said, let us make man in our mold, in our image. And God came down, became a man, condemned sin, lived a perfect life. Now, notice in John 12:9. Scriptures we tend not to read very often, except perhaps at the Passover. I think this is quite instructive. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there, and they came not only for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. A curiosity. A man had been raised from the dead. The Jews wanted to find out about it. This next statement is a fantastic one. Shows you a little bit of the attitude of some people that I can relate to now, finally. After all these years, I think I understand it more than I did six years ago. But the chief priests consulted. Now, here are the people standing for the law, but they're having a private meeting and they're hatching a murder plot. Instructive about their attitude and their nature, isn't it? The chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. What an indictment. The guy had already died. He'd been resurrected to life, and they're going to kill him again. What an incredible attitude. Because that by reason of him, they were losing support. Read it that way. They were losing control. They were losing donations. Income was going down. Emergencies were coming along. Because by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on a competitor, believed on Jesus. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was come to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, and I have this depicted a little bit in my book called Peter's Story, went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is the king of Israel, it comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king comes, how? Triumphantly or humbly, sitting on the foal or a coat of an ass with just somebody's robe there to ride on. And it was a very makeshift, humble kind of a ceremony. And yet, great exaltation among the poor, and the people of that community. These things, listen to this, understood not His disciples at the first. But, when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written on Him. John is writing this probably many years later. So now John has hindsight. And the Holy Spirit inspires him to put in a kind of an editorial concept. Oh, by the way, we didn't get it when it happened. But the Holy Spirit inspired us to understand it later. So I, John, am telling you, he says, that they did remember that these things were written about him and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bare record told other people about it. Yeah, he raised Lazarus. He really did it. For this cause the people also met him, for that they had heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how we prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. We're losing support. He's the new hero. They're all flocking over there to Jesus. And there were certain Greeks among them that came to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, same city as Peter and Andrew, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. They wanted to talk to him, find out about all these rumors. Philip came and told Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Now, why did Jesus respond? Because I think these were probably important officials. And he was now coming to the attention of the Greeks and the Romans. And so Jesus said, "...the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified." An old religious word. But try to crank your mind back to the way it must have been and the way Jesus thought about it as a human being. The hour is come. The time is near. "...when the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die..." it abides alone, but if it die, it brings forth much fruit. He that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Find for me rank in the words any man it means mankind so it includes you ladies and women if any person any isolated person any individual person will serve me him will my father honor does it say if any person will serve another person or doesn't it say if any man serve me let him follow me Does it say, follow the one I have put in charge? Follow my anointed human being? Or does it say, follow me? Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Shall I say that to my Father God up there in heaven? But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. He is filled with emotion at this moment. What do I say? Father, get me out of it. It's a purpose. I'm now coming to the end of this experience, coming to the end of this life. A grain of corn, a grain of wheat, it becomes a stalk, and thousandfold come from it. And new wealth is brought upon the earth. My hour is come. Father, glorify Thy name. Rumbling thunder. And a voice from heaven says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said, it thundered. I thought I heard thunder roll. And others said an angel talked to him. And Jesus said, This voice came not because of me. Again, look at the humility. He didn't take it as something to encourage him, support him. Thank you, Father, for helping me. He immediately saw it as a help to them. It was continually love flowing out toward those people that came from Jesus Christ. It didn't come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, talking about seeing a vision in his own mind, about them rearing a pail up into the air with his body fixed to it, with spikes driven through it, will draw all men unto me. This he said signifying what death he should die. I want to look a little further in John 17 and verse 20. The last formal words that Jesus spoke in a prayer to his father, beginning in the 17th chapter, verse 1, but I'm going to go to verse 20. We read this generally at the Passover service. And he said in verse 20, to his father, John, remembering with God's Holy Spirit to guide his pen, the words that Jesus prayed that night. Neither do I pray for these alone. And now let's take a look at these people here in this building in Tyler, Texas, 1984. And remember these words of Jesus Christ but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. What are we reading right now? John 17, 20. John wrote it. What do I know about God and about Jesus Christ? Nothing that I didn't get from the pen of Paul, Peter, James, Jude, Timothy. Not Timothy, he didn't write it. Paul wrote it to Timothy. Isaiah, Jeremiah, I don't know anything about God except what God has revealed to me through the life's blood, sweat, and tears, through the effort, the sacrifice, and in some cases the martyrdom of men. Men just like me and just like you who gave their lives. And here is my Savior, Jesus Christ, praying not just for those, but for me, for you. Praying for those who afterward will believe on Jesus Christ through their, that is, the Apostles' word. And they put it down in writing, and we have it preserved today. That they may all be one. Not one and then others, but one combined. That they may be one, as Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that You have sent Me. And the glory which You gave Me have I given them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that's a spiritual process by which our very nature, our hearts, the emotions that can be stirred within us, our real attitude or approach toward other human beings and toward our God is a spiritual quantity of our character and not human or physical or carnal, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them. What? God loved me? quite a statement, isn't it? God loves something like me, this thing walking around down here, this ugly kind of a caricature of a human shape. How could God love me? Well, he made me, he made you, he made all of us in his image. We are the progeny of Adam and Eve, of Noah and his family, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I will that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Listen to this. Now, how many times have you... I remember when I was a little kid, I just learned to swim. My dad and mom couldn't be bothered. They were sitting up on the bank talking to my grandparents. Look, Daddy, look, Mom. I'm diving through an inner tube. I wanted to show off, as they say in Texas, show out. I don't know why they say that. My wife says show out. I say show off. To my parents. I could swim. I wanted to do something. That's human nature. When you accomplish something, when you are able to do something or perform something, you want to share it. You paint, you sing, you are skillful on an instrument, you are skilled in some mechanical function or other, there's something you produce, produced, something you've done, well, you want to share it, display it, show it. Artists have showings. Musicians sing and perform, etc. Writers write, people read what they write. So people who accumulate or achieve or succeed want to share. I have a lot of moments in my life that I would like to share with you, but I can't. I just keep my mouth shut out where I live. I'd like to talk to my buddy about what it looks like at 39,000 feet with dawn coming up over the far northern part of Iceland. I'd like to tell him about what it was like that time when all of a sudden the start, starter generator shaft broke at exactly the midway point coming back across the Atlantic, and I had to hit 11 switches in about seven seconds to get the electrical load down or else we'd lose our navigational capability. But I can't do that because they think, oh, you're just bragging. You're just talking about yourself. You're just talking it up. Some of those old guys want to tell me about what it was like jumping out in 101st Airborne behind the Normandy beaches at the Contentin Peninsula and landing near the villages where I read about some of the great fighting in World War II and other people think they're just bragging. I've got a retired Air Force general out there that I play golf with once in a while. He keeps his mouth shut too. He doesn't talk about it. I understand this Look, look at these words. Jesus is praying to His Father, and in His mind are the faces of James and Andrew and Peter and John and Bartholomew and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite. And He's thinking about these vibrant, young, strong men that He has known in the deepest way three and one-half years. Father, I will that they also, whom You have given Me, be with Me where I am. I want them to know what it is like. I want them to really, finally, once and for all, understand what I was, where I came from, what I looked like before I walked around with them like a human being, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. I want them to look on me while I'm wearing my crown, while they can look at me like burnished bronze and gold and silver. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you have sent me. God, consorting with human beings, come down to the earth, walking on this soil with his own handiwork. And the very Son of God, Remember that God family, wanting so badly other human beings to see him the way he really is. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I, Jesus Christ, living my life within them. Isn't it interesting the last formal words we have record of that Jesus spoke were in a prayer and not to man, were to his Father and not to his disciples, and that it spoke of love being in them and Christ dwelling in their hearts and minds through love. Again, without an ugly contrast, think of the letter Mr. Dart read to the ministry this morning, and for those of you who didn't hear it, it was a letter of a person talking of the fright and the fear and the pain and the disillusionment and the, the bewilderment and the confusion that they are meeting. Every single Sabbath in church, they go to church in fear. And here is a message of boundless love. You're God's kids. You're God's children. I own you. You're mine. I purchased you. I've redeemed you. I love you. I care for you. You're going to make it. I am your righteousness. I am your wisdom. Will you please let me do a little more for you and quit trying to do so much for yourself? I'm not preaching against God's law. I'm not saying the Sabbath is legalism. I'm saying that some people become a little bit confused. And that those who are continually standing up in the pulpits and with cruelty and with force ruling over God's people and taking away from them the ebullience, the enthusiasm, the happiness, the joy of salvation, are robbing God's heritage of the experience of a family relationship with God. What is greater in your family than grandparents having a grandbaby on their knee with the kids there for a visit A family reunion, their loved ones sitting on the couch going through the album 20 and 30 years before. Can you tell me what is greater in your life than family? Having a family with you, close knit, warm, vibrant, and full, sharing the memories about, you remember when, you know, he may be 35 or 40, you're talking about what he did when he was a baby and grandma's chuckling over it. Is there anything greater than sharing family together? What is the church? What is the relationship God wants us to have? What's it all about? What is our calling? God wants you. He wants us in His family. That process is supposed to be a happy experience. He goes so far as to tell us, rejoice even in tribulation. If you are to rejoice in trial and rejoice in trouble and rejoice in tribulation, what about week in and week out? I mean, what about when it's good times? What about when the economy is in a slight little recovery, for pity's sake? Should every Sabbath be a crisis? Should every month be fear? Should every festival be a threat? Or should we rejoice and have joy in the knowledge of God's Word? Last formal words. Last closing line of his prayer to God. I have declared unto them my name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You know, men love a parade. I remember so very well some great parades I've seen, and having lived, of course, in Pasadena, right where the Rose Parade begins, I saw 20-some of those, where millions can only look at it on television, and it's a stirring sight. Those of you who are not quite my age won't remember some of the things that I remember, but... And I don't remember Lindy coming back. I don't know if that happened in my lifetime or before my lifetime. I've forgotten now. But anyway, I've seen some old black and white film of it. When Lindbergh came back from Paris and they had a ticker tape parade down 5th Avenue in New York City. Millions of human beings. I mean, the, the sky was just filled with confetti and it was a fabulous thing. When Eisenhower came home, I remember seeing a film of that after World War II. And the troops came home and whole divisions of men came back off those troop ships and were taken to the marshaling areas and put in their spick and span uniforms with their helmets and their rifles. And tens of thousands of American soldiers marched straight down 5th Avenue, New York City, with their general at the head of a column, not unlike Titus, coming through the arch of victory at the Appian Way in the entry of Rome at the head of a legion of Roman troops. And America went crazy in celebration. The greatest hero of America since George Washington, Ike Eisenhower, and that feeling was sufficient to convey him into the Oval Office in the White House. A victory parade, a celebration of millions of people, tears streaming down their faces, applauding till their hands ached. Ike is home. We won the war. Peace is here at last, and war is over. When MacArthur waited ashore at the Philippines, when he said, I will return, when the astronauts rode down 5th Avenue to a ticker tape parade, man had ascended to the moon. Great tumultuous events. In John 20 and verse 17, Jesus has now been resurrected. He is there. He has been around for some hours. I don't know what he did for all of those hours between the time he stepped through solid stone and the time this took place. But Mary is there, and I won't read it all. In verse 15, she is weeping. Jesus said, Why do you weep? Whom are you looking for? She thought he was a gardener, maybe because, as I've speculated about, the way he might have appeared. He was probably disfigured. She didn't recognize him. Jesus said, Mary, and the tone of voice made her understand who he was. Rabboni, verse 16, which is the same Master. And Jesus said, Touch me not. She was going to seize him, probably by the feet, because it says over in the book of Mark and elsewhere in the Gospel that a little later on they grabbed him and worshipped him, holding on his feet. But that wasn't yet. Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren. I love that language. Go to my brothers. Go to my brethren. And say unto them, I ascend unto my Father. And then he didn't say, he, he didn't just leave it at that. He didn't say, I'm going to my Father. I'm going to my God. Look at what he said. I ascend unto my Father and your... He shared even that moment and that expectation. I ascend to my God and your God. He's our God together. He went on to say those words. He, didn't, he could have said, I've done it and I'm going back to God. And I'll come back and I'll see you later. To tell him I ascend to my God and to your God. To my Father and to your Father. Turn right quickly to the book of Daniel, the seventh chapter. Daniel 7, if there's any place in the Bible that gives us a little bit of a picture of what happens up in heaven, this is perhaps a part of it, at least in this prophetic chapter. Daniel sees in vision, verse 9 of chapter 7, I beheld till the thrones, that is the thrones of these beasts and creatures and the little horn that came up and so on mentioned in the preceding verses. I beheld till the thrones, symbolic of great vaunted kingdoms and empires and nations on this earth were cast down, replaced or overthrown. And the Ancient of Days did sit. You think of a great kingly figure like a judge, perhaps judiciary figure of snowy white hair, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool, shining, brilliant white. His throne was like the fiery flame. You can read of that in Ezekiel 1 And Ezekiel 10. And his wheels as burning fire, like liquid fire whirling around. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. And he is seeing like rainbows and sparks and flashes of lightning and just a a mind-boggling scene. Thousand, thousands. How many is that? That's millions. Millions ministered unto him. That is showing a huge sea of multitudinous beings there all of them adoring this personage on the throne, all of them waving, holding their arms up in the air, saying, Hallelujah, great and holy and mighty are Thou, O Lord God. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. It's always exciting when people stand up. People stand up traditionally in the Hallelujah chorus of the Messiah because a king was so overcome years ago when he first heard it He was so inspired, he couldn't sit anymore. So he stood up. Well, everyone had to rise when the king did. And so they all stood up and stood there with tears streaming down their face, hearing hallelujah, hallelujah, as they sang that song. Traditionally, every audience that has ever heard that beautiful oratorio and that final climactic number since has risen and stood on their feet. Parades are done with marching columns of men in unison standing up and absolutely thrilling to what is taking place. And here are 10,000 times 10,000 standing before Him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. It gives us another brief glimpse in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like a son of man. It says in the margin, like a son of man, like a human. Like he had been born of mankind came with the clouds of heaven, you can get a picture of this like it would be in a movie or something, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him, and it was given unto Him dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now that probably was some sort of a ceremony. A crown was placed on His head. Some sort of congratulatory message passed from the Ancient of Days to the one standing before Him. A well done, a congratulation, When you have a soldier, like I remember seeing a couple of times the movie called To Hell and Back, it was inspiring for the simple reason that even though it is blood and guts and glory and all of that, from a carnal mundane sense of the word, it was America's truest great hero in World War II, Audie Murphy, who later on became a Hollywood movie actor and did a lot of El Cheapo westerns. But Audie Murphy, when they read off the list of medals that he earned, Including the Congressional Medal of Honor, a couple of silver stars, every kind of medal at the. Well, actually, he won every medal the United States government is capable of giving a human being, plus the Croix de Guerre of France. And here's this little five foot six and three quarter, nondescript, boyish looking soldier who actually was one of the greatest heroes of World War II. And there he is standing in Washington, D.C. With a general of the army with five stars and 10,000 soldiers and the flag snapping in the breeze, Audie Murphy stepped forward, he comes forward, and by this time he was a lieutenant, and they hang around his neck, you know, in a complete wreath, the Congressional Medal of Honor. Fantastic climax to a fantastic movie that was very realistic about the way the war really was in World War II. When you have a commencement, a wedding, a ceremony, a recognition of something accomplished, a graduation. When you have an ordination, words are spoken. Congratulations are issued. A recounting of what the person has done is recited. And someone is given a scroll or a wreath or a card or a badge or a medal, a handshake, sometimes a hug and sometimes there are tears involved. Touch me not, he said, chapter 20 and verse 17 of the book of John. But you can turn a little later on and find that they immediately handled Him. Sometime on that day, a great scene took place that I can only begin to imagine. As I think back at all the great parades that I've talked about and recounted, if I turn to the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation and read about the translucent sea of glass and the 24 elders, and this picture I get out of the book of Daniel of the Son of Man coming as if if with the clouds And apparently, somehow, as the disciples see him taken up with clouds, he appears before God Almighty in heaven, as with clouds, fluffy white clouds behind him. I like to imagine, in my mind's eye, that there were these millions of angelic beings zipping around and whizzing through, not the air, but space, Here is that translucent platform with a carabin beneath it and these fiery wheels emitting glowing sparks and radiant, vibrant, beautiful, flare-like flashing lights of some sort as it's described in Ezekiel 1 and 10. And that there on the steps, walking along toward a being sitting on a throne, which we cannot envision how great, how awesome, how sparkling, radiant, how bright, how powerful that being must appear, And here comes a bedraggled, wounded, injured, crippled being, walking slowly, great gaping wounds, one eye perhaps clear out of the socket. He is wearing a robe drenched with his own blood. And he comes up before that great being, and the great being looks at him, and he looking into the face of God. And I wonder if his first words weren't, Why didn't you tell me? Because, you know, the greatest secret that was ever kept was the shock that Jesus experienced when He is praying to the Father and at the very last moment of His life He said, it is finished. Remember His words? The last word He ever said was the word finished. It is finished. And He expired. Or as it says in the Bible, gave up the ghost. It is finished. He knew it was over. In Hebrews 1 and verse 3 it says, when He had by Himself purged our sins, He was set down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. God the Father may have said, I couldn't have told you because then you would have expected it. And you prayed so fervently those three times in heartbroken agony, begging me to let us work it out some other way. It was so tough for you to face as it was. It wasn't until the third time and I kept silence and I didn't answer that prayer. And when you got up from that third prayer and said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, God may have said, your Father cried. I like to imagine what that parade was like. What the coronation of Christ was like in heaven above when He said, it is finished. And then He ascends to God the Father and walks up to Him and is crowned and angels go crazy. He did it. He's back here glorified again. He walked the earth condemned sin in the flesh, overthrew Satan the devil, disqualified the devil, and he's back in heaven above and very God once again. Now let's get busy with the rest part of our rest of our program down here until we have it all concluded and put together because God is reproducing after the God kind and God is enlarging his great family. In 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, it says, As in Adam all die, verse 22, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that belong to Christ. I like that language. They that are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. There is still another final ceremony. There is still another great parade. There is still another great occasion in heaven above of which we can read. Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Pray God that Jesus Christ does not come as a part of his challenge and a part of his job to put down rule and authority and power inside his own church. There should not be authority and power and rule inside his own church that even Jesus Christ has to decide to put down. But there should be gentleness and meekness and goodness and faith and the Son of Man who is willing to ride on the foal of an ass. Not a charging stallion. Not a Sherman tank. But the foal of a little donkey. He must reign till He has put all enemies under His feet. And the last enemy, and isn't it a bitter, rotten enemy? And don't we hate it? The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Revelation 14. Revelation, the 14th chapter, very quickly. I looked, John says, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred and forty and four thousand, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder like rolling peals of thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. Songs, music, instruments, great ceremony accompanies things that even happen in heaven above. The four creatures, that is the four great cherubim, and the elders, 24 of them, 12 on each side of God's throne, that no man could learn that song but the 140 and 4,000 which were Bought back, purchased, bought, redeemed from the earth spiritually. The next statement is meant having to do with the false church. Certainly, because of what it says in Hebrews thirteen eight that marriage is honorable in all, and the bed is undefiled. And God said, "Replenish the earth." These are they which were not defiled with women, meaning false, fallen churches, for they are virgins spiritually speaking. These are they which follow the Lamb. Is that Lamb the one who guides you? Is He the one you follow? Is He your true leader? Whithersoever He goes, these were redeemed from among men. They were bought. And the price He paid when He outbid Satan the devil for your life is plenty adequate. Adequate for you and four and a half billion others just like you. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile. These are innocent, sweet little people. They're guileless. They're childlike. They're tender. They're loving. They love one another and they act like it. They're without fault. How could they be? Well, because He is our righteousness and He is without guile. They're without fault before the throne of God over a little later on in the 19th chapter, in the 19th chapter, we can read of another great picture of heaven. In chapter 19, and verse 1, after these things I heard a great voice of much being, much people, muchidumre it says in Spanish, in heaven saying, Alleluia, that means praise to God, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments, for He has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and has avenged the blood of His servants at her hand. What is the future of those who are called to do the work of God in this last moment of human experience on this earth? Are they not those of whom Jesus said, Some of you shall they put to death? And they that kill you will think they do God a service. And it's not this prayer from these great exalted beings in heaven above in great exaltation and glory toward Almighty God, saying He is righteous because of what He is going to do to this great false religious system, showing that God is right to mete out the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate penalty for death to those individuals who have taken the lives of God's own people. Martyrdom may be in the offing for some of us. I don't know. But I do know that God's people are not called and trained and put through trial and temptation almost to the point of insanity and put through troubles and problems to the point of despair and put through experiences that burn them out and rub calluses on top of calluses to the point they sometimes perhaps toy with suicide or giving up and quitting so that at the last moment He spirits them away into a desert wilderness and sits them on a sidelines and says, I'll handle it from here on. You all retire. No, I think those people who have accumulated that wisdom and experience and all those calluses are going to be right in the thick of things when it all happens. And that's why I still believe a great work is to be done. And that's why I believe, I think I know, where Almighty God is going to do it. I know that when a man is done, the man's work is done. When a man is finished, his work is finished. A man cannot live forever, except that God resurrects him. And Almighty God is not doing that right now in our time. I had my opportunity to turn away from the ministry when I was offered a very lucrative salary and three different things I won't go into a lot, lot of years ago now, July of 1978. I didn't choose to do that because I guess I had a complex of some sort. I have oftentimes asked God if there's any other way, if he could raise up somebody else, if somebody else could have the responsibility, if he could give them the gift, I sure wish he would, because as I've said time and again, I would lovingly kiss the feet of the angel who tells me I don't need to do it anymore. I'd like to uh, have some waning years and see my own grandchildren come along. It looks like that's going to happen in a year or so now. And live life a little differently than I have had to live it for the last 28 years. But I remember the example of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And I do know that God has given me some gifts. I don't know how important those gifts are or whether they're to be used much longer or not. I'm just saying that if He wants to use them, all I can say is, here they are. It kind of surprises me. So in a final analysis, as I ask at the beginning of the program, does God want you? You know, God wants you. I say, me? How could God want anyone so inferior and so incredibly stupid, and so human, and so filled with shortcomings and faults as me. How could? That's a miracle to me. God want me? What? It doesn't make sense. What would God want with the likes of me? I know a lot of people in this society, I mean really great people, intelligent people, educated, marvelous people. I think, now God might want them. But I say, you mean God wants me? You have to consider, I think, all that we have read today in God's Word and about the time when God Himself came down on this earth and was made in the form of a man and said what He did to His disciples, I have called you friends. And with His last dying thoughts, prayed that they would be kept in God's love and said to them, I don't go to my God, but I go to my God and your God and the sharing and the caring that he illustrated. And then you ask that same question. Does God want you... I mean, as you sit there right now, the way you look, in the shape you are, with your mind and your brain and your heart and your background and your experience, and you ask that question, and I can answer, yes. Believe it or not, God wants you.